Good morning, everyone, and uh, thank you for joining us again. We will, in a moment, jump into our message for this morning. Before that, let's bow together and pray. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can be together. Thank you for modern technology that enables this. And we pray now that you might minister to us your grace through your word and by your spirit, that he might speak to us through this passage and that we might be on track and online in serving the Lord Jesus. Help us to listen, Lord, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Luke chapter 13 is where we're up to. And this morning we're going to cover three sort of parables, certainly one parable and maybe two illustrations or something like that. <clears throat> Jesus has been uh, set his face to head towards Jerusalem and on the way he's been teaching and doing miracles and uh, has given the impression to some of the crowd following him that not everybody's going to make it into the kingdom of God. And so in this passage, he's going to be asked a question about how many people will there be? Will there be many or will there be a few? He's also, through his miracles, been demonstrating the power of the kingdom of God. And there's a growing swell of opinion that Jesus is going to inaugurate the kingdom right now. That when he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to overthrow the Romans. He's going to set up the kingdom and that he will be the reigning king who will, with the Jewish people, conquer and rule through the world like they did in the time of King David. That was certainly the Jewish expectation of the coming age, that it would be sudden, that when the Messiah came, when he appeared, he would overthrow the enemy dramatically, that he would set up that kingdom. And it would be the Jewish people who would be ruling and reigning with him, plus some of the believing Gentiles, the proselytes like Rahab and Ruth and others who were like them, who left their Gentile ways and became Jewish people. That was the Jewish expectation. <clears throat> Think of something like the movie Independence Day, where there is this sudden appearance of alien forces and it's going to lead to worldwide domination. That was the Jewish expectation. And so Jesus in this passage He's talking to the crowd about, well, what is the kingdom of God like? It's not like that. Not yet. Um, what shall I compare it to, the Lord Jesus says. And he takes two illustrations from everyday life uh, to draw a comparison between these illustrations and what the kingdom of God is like. And in the first one, the... Um, the parable of the mustard seed in verse 19, the Lord Jesus says, The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, which a man took, planted in his garden. It grew and became a tree, and birds perched in its branches. And the second one, again, he said, What shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and mixed it with, the NIV says, 60 pounds, three measures of flour, a sizable amount and until the yeast had worked its way all through the dough. Jesus takes these two very common everyday items to talk about the kingdom. In the 19th century and up until the 19th, early 20th century, the church misunderstood what Jesus was saying here. It was very commonly believed that uh, Jesus was trying to say that the gospel will spread throughout the whole world and that the whole world will become Christianized that every nation will bow the knee and that then Jesus will return and the kingdom will be established. Uh, James Montgomery Boyce says in 1893, 
82% of, of the world was under Christian rule, under the direct influence of the church, 82%. And yet we know from other parables, the parable of the sower, the parable of the weeds, that uh, the church will not rule this world universally and nor will the church be perfect. Um, and certainly in history, through history, this misunderstanding of these parables when we got to the 20th century, they were suddenly the bubble was burst with the Titanic sinking. Not even God can sink the Titanic. It sank. World War I, followed by the Great Depression, followed by World War II, followed by other wars, followed even by uh, the misbehavior and sins of those who were so-called Christian leaders of Christian nations. And that led to um, a changing of an understanding and a changing of belief that Post-millennialism is not the way forward, that we will not conquer this world, but that rather we will continue to work in the world uh, and for God to achieve his purposes. Today's parables are not about triumphalism, but they're about the effective growth of God's kingdom and the authentic transformation of the power of the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom, that it grows and that it changes lives. That's the bottom line of what Jesus is trying to say, that the kingdom of God is not coming suddenly and in power just yet, but it's going to begin small. It will grow and it will be effective and it will achieve God's purposes. So let's have a look at each of these, perhaps just quickly and make a few points. When it comes to the parable of the mustard seed, the mustard seed, of course, is one of the smallest of all seeds. It's almost invisible to the human eye. <clears throat> and mustard trees, shrubs come in three or four different varieties so we're not exactly sure of which one Jesus meant and nor does that matter but they grow from this very tiny seed planted in a garden or a field or wherever. They can grow to a shrub often of four feet, they can go as high as 12 feet, three, four meters and one variety even grows to a height of 25 feet, about eight meters. So it is correct to be able to say what Jesus says here, of course, uh, that it's a mustard seed grew to, and planted and it grew to be a tree. That's a, a fair description of some of these plants. And that's the point. God's kingdom is small now, might be insignificant to observers, but it starts small and it will grow. Um, the Lord Jesus is saying the kingdom is here now. It started demonstrated in his life and through his miracles and his teaching. And the kingdom of God is within us. It's God's presence in his people. And it still is today. God's kingdom is expressed through spirit-filled, spirit-gifted, Bible-believing followers of the Lord Jesus. Um, it's, we'll continue like that until the king himself does return, when he will establish his kingdom as that magnificent tree. Until then, uh, the kingdom of God will continue to grow. Jesus goes on to illustrate this a second way. He takes in verse 20, um, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? It's like yeast that a woman took and put into this large measures, enough to feed about 160 people, large measures of flour and left it overnight and the yeast does its work. It permeates the whole, it has an impact on the whole. And I think that's probably the point Jesus is saying. The kingdom is small. Um, 
it's outside the flower and it needs to enter, it needs to become part of the flower. When it does that, given time, it will develop and multiply and have an influence. Initially, um, the work it does is on the inside and it's uh, invisible. But that invisible work of God's kingdom in us becomes obvious and visible as you see the transformation, the change. It happens eventually. Um, some people want to make something about it with three measures of flour and what that means. And I think that's trying to read something into it which isn't there. They're trying to make the parable uh, an analogy or an allegory of something um, which doesn't really help. So the kingdom of God, Jesus is saying here to the crowd, uh, it may look weak and it may be small. It may even appear to be ineffective. Um, but its very characteristics will enable it to grow and to spread. What we need to do is to trust God that he will develop his kingdom. He will achieve his purposes. We should be encouraged. Uh, God is growing his kingdom. He's building his church. He's bringing people into the kingdom. And that God will cause the kingdom of the Lord Jesus to grow and to impact the whole of life. Not necessarily the whole of this world, but certainly the whole of our lives because he enters us and he transforms us and he reigns within us both individually but also corporately. That's what we pray for when we pray the Lord's Prayer. It's our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name, may your name be holy in us and in us as a church. Um, may your kingdom come in us and in our church corporate body the community of God's people may your will be done on earth in us and in your church in your people as it is done in heaven and so on so the kingdom of God is within us and then Jesus continues on Luke tells us in verse 22 and a person verse 23 asks a question Lord are only a few people going to be saved picking up from some of the other things Jesus would have said or implied at other times on this journey Notice Jesus' uh, answer or response to the question. He doesn't answer it directly, but rather he gives a challenge, a personal challenge to the questioner. He says, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able. The answer implies that many won't make it. But Jesus is far more concerned rather than engaging in theological speculation don't worry about how many are going to be in, in the kingdom, how many people are going to be saved. The question is, are you going to be saved? Will you enter? And Jesus challenges him, make every effort to enter through the door, through the narrow door. Um, let me emphasize that what Jesus is saying to that person and to us, it's keep on making every effort. It's not something we do once. It's not a decision or it's not a decision only to follow Jesus it begins with a decision to follow him to repent to believe to receive the Holy Spirit and forgiveness of sins but then it's to go on uh, following Jesus to go on if you like the door is narrow but the path after it is likewise narrow and that we are to pursue him Jesus says to him keep on making every effort in fact 
the Greek word comes across into our English language as agonize. Put a lot of effort in, be committed, be determined and maintain that level. Um, keep moving forward. And if you remember, Jesus is speaking to a group of people that had the law and they had the prophets, they had the temple, they had the covenants, they had lots of spiritual privileges. But privileges don't make the difference. That's something for us to hear. If you don't believe and obey, then it doesn't matter what spiritual privileges you have, whether your parents are Christians, whether your uh, grandparents were, whether you're in a good Bible teaching church, they're spiritual privileges. But what has to happen, there has to be a transformation within each of us personally. Um, let's just work our way through the parable and note some points. Firstly, it's a narrow door. It's something that uh, is not going to be easy. Walking through a door is easy. It's better than climbing a wall or jumping through a window. So entering through a door is simple, but Jesus makes the point this is a narrow door. Some effort is going to be required. And so too, as we come to the point of faith in our life, there is some effort required. There is some seeking, some searching, some wrestling. Um, and Jesus is saying that's normal. Let's continue that process of entering through. Um, I think it was Spurgeon who said that me and my sin must part company if I am to be saved. There are choices to make. Remember the another story, analogy Jesus gave with the camel through the eye of a needle? Uh, though that one is often misunderstood, it's often helpful that the camel almost has to put aside a whole lot of things in order to get through this small space. So effort is required. So people came to Jesus one day and they said, having observed him doing what God wanted, what is it that God wants us to do? John chapter 6. And Jesus says... Uh, the will of God, the work of God for you is to believe in the one he has sent. That's what God wants you to put your effort into. Believe in Jesus. That's number one. Then number two, to go on, Philippians chapter 2 verse 12 says that we are to continue to work out our salvation. God is at work within us, giving us the desire and the ability to do, but we are to cooperate with that and to work out our salvation, to continue to follow the narrow way. It's a narrow door. There is a time limit. The door is open now. The opportunity is there for us, for our loved ones, our friends, our neighbours, our work colleagues. It's open now, but it won't be open all the time. There will come a time when the owner of the house will close the door. Jesus will close the door. There's a time limit to the offer. And so... When does the door close? Well, we don't know. Certainly at death it's closed and certainly at Jesus' return it'll be closed. If it closes at any other point in a person's life, then we're not given those instructions. So the assumption we can safely make is that for you, if you're alive and breathing, it's open. And the opportunity is there for you to be able to walk through, to accept God's offer of free forgiveness through his son, the Lord Jesus. Um, Jesus says to enter in because there will come a time when it's closed. And then Jesus engages in this imaginary dialogue between people who had not entered in. Um, 
verse 25 says, Once the owner uh, gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, Sir, open to us. Jesus is certainly talking to the Jewish people listening to him who assumed that they would be in automatically because they were Jewish, had the spiritual privileges. Let's listen to what Jesus teaches us through this dialogue. Sir, open to us um, and he will answer, I don't know you or where you're from. I don't know you. There's no personal relationship. And then you will say, we ate with you and we drank with you and you taught in our streets. We know you. We have followed you. We've been listening to you. We've fellowshiped with you. Note the response, verse 27. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you have come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. They could be, it's possible to be a person close to Jesus, to be eating with him, eat, drinking with him, uh, listening to him and still not know him or him to know you. There's no relationship. There's no connection. You haven't gone through the door. You haven't entered into that relationship. And even the phrase, verse 27 is, we, uh, sorry, verse 26, uh, we ate with you and drank with you. That's language like for us for communion. We eat and drink in his presence. It's quite possible for people to be attending church and having communion even and listening to Jesus' teaching through his word, through the preachers and so on, but not know Jesus. Spiritual privileges won't get us into the kingdom. We have to make a personal response. We need to repent of our sins and come to him, bow the knees, submit to him, ask him to forgive us and to receive the gift of his Holy Spirit. We are not saved by our efforts, but there is some effort required in coming to the point of believing. So the question is, does Jesus know you? Are you in a personal relationship with him? Not do you attend church, not do you go to a connect group or a Bible study group, none of those things. Do you know him personally? The Lord Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the true and living God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus goes on to give the illustration that these people who are locked out, excluded, surprisingly, uh, that there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Weeping could denote uh, both sorrow and regret. Gnashing of teeth is either deep grief or even anger, rage. Um, weeping and gnashing of teeth because they will see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all of the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out, excluded the door shut. And then verse 29, the Lord Jesus goes on to talk about a surprising inclusion. People will come from east and west and north and south and they'll take their place in the feast of the kingdom of God. Indeed, those who are first, those who are last will be first and those who are first will be last. It's going to be surprising. The kingdom is not what we expected. It, it started already. It's come in a form we didn't expect. Uh, Jesus used the illustration of a mustard seed that became a mustard tree. More commonly in the Old Testament, it was the kingdom of God was likened to a tall, powerful cedar tree. It's Jesus is surprising the crowd by the kingdom is not what they have misunderstood, what they've been expecting. 
and they'll be excluded but Gentiles, proselytes, those who come to faith in him from east and west, north and south, from all nations, just like the birds came and lived in the branches of the trees, so people will come to the feast of the kingdom of God. And there's going to be this eternal reversal. Those who are last will be first, and those who are first will be last. There's the people who are least impressive will be exalted in that day, and the people who are impressive now and that we expect will be honoured will be potentially reduced to less importance. William Barclay tells a story of a lady who was very wealthy, who um, was a religious person, believed in Jesus, uh, died, went to heaven. When she gets to heaven, she gets this, um, a tour of heaven by an angel. And the angel takes her through the streets of the heavenly city and she sees all these magnificent large mansions and she's expecting that that's her home for eternity and they leave the city and they go out to the suburbs and still nice places and she's expecting hers to be there and they go right to the outskirts of the city and on the very outskirts of the suburbs of heaven there is these little huts and the angel goes up to her and points out a little hut and says that's yours that's where you'll be spending eternity. And she says, what? I can't live there. To which the angel says, well, I'm very sorry, but that's all we could build with what you had sent. Hmm. Interesting story, isn't it? But it does show the parallel that what we do in this life will echo in eternity. It determines our rewards, our response, our service here, our obedience here, our entering through the narrow door and continuing striving to enter and to follow the Lord Jesus very important it's not just for Sundays it's for every day our lives are to be transformed the narrowness of the entrance to the kingdom actually broadens into being available for anyone and everyone none are excluded except those who exclude themselves the narrow way is wide open to one and all the question is have you entered have you entered John MacArthur says this, the most offensive claim in all religions, the most offensive claim is that there is only one God, one saviour, one true religion, one holy book, one gospel, one way of salvation. All other religions are lies, they're deceptions, they're the doctrines of Satan that will lead people into an eternal hell. It just happens to be the truth. The Lord Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Acts 4.12 says that there is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. It's exclusive, it's offensive, but it's true. There is only one door. It's a narrow door, and it's the only door into the kingdom of heaven. It's open now. You've been sent an invitation. You need to RSVP, regardless of your background. Whether like the rich lady, you're a person of privilege, of, of wealth or of social prominence or of great achievements, or whether you lack all of the above, regardless of what you've done, 
Jesus invites us to come to him. John chapter 9 verse 10, uh, chapter 10 verse 9, Jesus gives a similar analogy. He's talking about the gate to the sheep. In the NIV, it's the gate. All other versions use the word door. I am the door. Those who, whoever enters by me will go in and out and find pasture. They'll go in and they will be saved, Jesus says. So strive to enter. Keep on striving to enter. Be determined, committed. Be steady in your determination of following Jesus and obeying him. As Jesus has said elsewhere in Luke uh, chapter 9, verse 23, we are to deny ourselves. We're to take up our cross each day and then we are to follow him. Deny ourselves, take up our cross, not living for us, living for him and to follow him. Through our disciplines of Bible reading and prayer and fellowship with other believers and obeying what he says to us in his word and serving him in the church and in the world as well as sharing the gospel with us. There's only one door. One day it will close and many will be excluded. Does the Lord Jesus Christ know you? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, again, we want to acknowledge that the kingdom of heaven is real and that Jesus is the only way. We thank you that he has come into our world to be our saviour, to redeem us from sin's penalty. And that now he stands with arms outstretched, offering us forgiveness and freedom and purpose and direction in life. Lord, Many of us, we've entered through the narrow door and we're continuing to follow you. I pray that you would enable us to continue the process, to please and to uh, serve and to have your approval on that final day. Lord, open other doors of opportunity for the gospel for us to share it. Um, yeah. And then, Lord, there are some of us who are listening today who have not entered through the narrow door. Uh, Jesus, another analogy is Jesus is standing at the door and knocking of the door of our hearts. and He wants entrance and he's inviting us to enter through that door into a living, vital relationship with him. Help us to do that. Thank you, Lord, for the spiritual privileges that we have. Help us not to neglect them, nor to rely on them, but to rely on you, that it's a relationship with Jesus. We're not saved by our efforts. We're not saved by how good we are. We're saved by knowing him, serving him and following him. Lord, fill us with your Holy Spirit and have your will and your way in each of us and help us to know you more and more each day. We ask and pray, Lord, in your name. Amen.